This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. And today we have uh, eight questions. Um, and if I sound a little congested, it's because I am. I Unfortunately, Sean and I caught COVID. Uh, it's funny, one of my girlfriends was like, for the first time? And I was like, yeah, for the first time. But many people have gotten it multiple times. So I guess I should be fortunate. Um, we made it almost exactly two years from the initial lockdown. And then we got it I believe it was when we went out to dinner for Sean's birthday on the 16th of March, the day before his birthday. Um, Or it could have been, I had an appointment the next morning at the dentist. Those are the only two real contact situations that we had. So it could have been one of those. Um, We don't know, but we're technically now negative, but we still have a few symptoms. Like I'm still a little congested and hopefully that will go away. Um, But luckily I was ahead on the podcast. So even though I didn't record last week, because I had no voice, they still went out. Yay. Thing Doing things for future Katie made it better for me. Okay. Without further ado. Oh, and also I wanted to say that someone on Instagram had an idea where she was like, hey, could you try to cater the questions for the podcast to like a certain topic each week? That way, you know, if I'm looking for eating disorder content, I can make sure to tune into that one. And I was like, sure, I can do that. So we're going to give that a try. So you will see... Um, this week, I wasn't able to do it because I'd already asked for your questions. Um, and if you hear growling, it's Roxy. Um, but in the future weeks, when I ask for questions, they'll be a little bit more specific in the community tab. It'll ask for things around, you know, social anxiety or anxiety, panic attacks, things like that, or eating disorder based, binging, restricting, um, what have you, recovery, uh, then, you know, trauma, self injury. We'll just try to, you know, separate them out into buckets so that we can have kind of more catered podcasts, I guess, more specific to topic. Um, And you guys let me know. Let me know if you like that idea. Let me know if you don't. You kind of like it when it's a hodgepodge and a total mix. I'm happy to do either. We're just trying out something new. And with that, let's get into question number one. Now this question says, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I know that a lot of therapists see a therapist themselves, themselves, correct. When I talk what I talk about with my therapist is supposed to be between us. Would the therapist be allowed to discuss any of our conversation with their therapist being that they have the same agreement? Like for example, if something triggers them, could they talk about it with their own therapist? Thank you, Katie. This is a great question. And I've had a lot of questions over the years about like confidentiality and concerns about that. But when it comes to my own therapy time, yes, I would mention stuff I would mention the thing that triggered me, right? Like, oh, I have this patient. And the thing about telling my own therapist, and even when I talk to, I know I've told you guys over the years, I was, uh, when I was in Santa Monica, I was part of this peer kind of support groupy type thing. It was like a supervision group. We called it the journal club, but it was a supervision group for a bunch of different mental health professionals. And when you discuss certain patients, you often don't give any identifying characteristics of them. Meaning that like, let's say it's a male in his 20s. When I would talk to my uh, journal club about it, it'd be a female in her 40s, let's say. 
And you kind of don't share anything that could give them away what they do for a living or specifics. It's more about like what's hanging you up. Like for instance, I had a patient, oh God, probably like five years ago now, but um, he struggled with borderline personality disorder. And I brought it up at my journal club and I'm talking about it with you now. Um, And the thing that was really hanging me up was the attachment slash boundaries and his constant need to like push those. And I was like, am I not doing this right? How come he's, you know, pushing them so much? Um, Does he need a higher level of care? I was just trying to find out like this, this one specific thing that we kept running into, like, what else could I do? Now, that doesn't tell you anything about that patient. And actually, I've changed a lot of things already about them. Um, so that you wouldn't know who they are. And that's essentially what you do in therapy. And it's in therapy, in my own therapy, it's more about like my response. Like, let's say I had a patient where I found myself having counter transference, meaning when a patient uh, treats you like someone else in their life, meaning transference is happening, which is incredibly common. As a therapist, we're supposed to recognize, you know, that that's kind of happening, draw attention to it, talk through it, figure it out, offer another way of responding instead of reacting, right? Like, let's say they're treating you like their mother, instead of you lashing out and yelling back, you would respond thoughtfully and say, you know, it sounds like you're really upset, you know, and you'd be more of that holding safe space. On the other hand, if I'm not taking care of my own mental health, I could do what's called countertransference, which is when I, instead of giving that nice, healthy response, I would give a reaction, I would react out of that transference, and I would treat you just the way that your mom treated you, or maybe even acting out of one of my own situations or issues. And that's not healthy. And so in my therapy, I would bring up, hey, I had a patient who had transference that felt kind of like this, and it was super triggering. And I found myself struggling to not lash out, right? That would be about it. There wouldn't be any identifiable characteristics. I wouldn't share anything about your process or what's happening with you because my therapy is not about you. It's about me and what I'm struggling with. And that would be what it would focus more on. And someone else else left a comment below this about them being in therapy or no, not being in therapy, in school right now to become a therapist and how in this sharing of what how something in session might be affecting us personally, they feel that we as therapists are better able to like grow and be better for our patients. And I agree with that, like without reservation, like a hundred percent, because if I'm not able to talk about it with my therapist, then that means that I can't necessarily show up for you and I can't be good at my job. But keeping in mind that there, there are confident, like you hold your confidentiality. Therefore, when I go into my therapy session, I'm not at free reign to talk about anything. And I wouldn't share much, if anything, about what's happening with you, again, because it's not about you. And frankly, it's not going to be helpful for my therapist to even know. It's more about me sharing what how things are affecting me and then working to better that. I hope that makes sense. And obviously, there are always the basic limits to confidentiality. You know, if you're a danger to yourself or others, meaning if you're suicidal or homicidal, or if you're abusing someone, child abuse, neglect, uh, elder abuse, or dependent adult abuse, those are all things we have to report. Um, someone left a long comment about um, that this is the biggest deterrent for people to not want to see a therapist. I don't really agree with that statement, but I think that some people... Um, can fear that a therapist is going to break confidentiality thinking that it's not as strict as it really is because there are so many laws in place. I can lose my license if I break confidentiality for a reason that is not deemed uh, credible. Meaning if I decide to tell your parent 
about something you said, you're over 18, you didn't give me consent, you didn't sign an um, authorization for release, meaning that you allow me to talk to them, and I do talk to them, I could lose my license. Um, If I call to report child abuse, and I have no means to do like, there's, I have no information, it's not even a reason, you know, there, I have no reason to actually do that, then that's also not safe for me to do. Because again, I'm breaking confidentiality without cause. Um, And so I want you all to know that those are the only limits to confidentiality. And then when it comes to supervision or my own therapy, it's very limited what we share. It's usually around something where where we're feeling kind of stuck and how we can help you better. And then in our own therapy, it's about what's affecting us and how we can do better for ourselves. Now, there was a comment on this that says, as a follow-up question, are you allowed to ask your therapist to not share anything at all with their therapist or even their supervisor? Like not even general details. My therapist told me she talks to her therapist about me and it was very unnerving. I would definitely tell your therapist about that and let them know. I believe that you could say you don't want them to share anything, um, even general details. I do want you to know, again, what I'm saying is the only reason we would bring it up is because we're wanting some extra support and extra insights. And so you may limit your therapist as, I guess, in the way of like how, how they can help you. They may refer you out more quickly because the thing that's great about supervision and, um, talking with other clinicians, like I said, in my journal club about those areas where we're stuck is that you not only get my knowledge and expertise, but then you get the knowledge and expertise of like my supervision group, which was like six people, let's say, then you get their insights as well. And it can actually be more helpful for you. Um, But if it bothers you, tell your therapist. I don't think a therapist would have any issue not doing that, but I just want you to take that into consideration as well. And like not even general details, that's fine. I don't think they'll have any problem with it. I just want you to know that that's the only reason we really share. Now, another comment says, I was thinking of becoming a therapist, but I feel weird when I think about telling my therapist about it because I am so vulnerable and weak with him and I'm afraid that he'll say something like, I don't think you could do that. Is this common for people who are in therapy to want to become therapists? When you as a therapist are in session with your therapist, does it feel different than when you weren't one yet? Uh, Lots of good questions. Now, Um, a lot of people who are in therapy want to become therapists. And the main crux of what makes a good therapist good and a bad therapist bad lies within the reason behind becoming a therapist. Now, hear me out. Uh, One of my favorite psychiatrists in Santa Monica, Dr. Sherman, I love him. He is great at his job and he is a wonderful, uh, very caring man. He one time told me that There are people who get into the realm of psychology. This isn't just therapy. This is like psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, therapists, counselors, the whole gamut, Uh, life coaches, probably, even maybe psych nurses. You could put them in there as well, school counselors. We get into this mental health realm to fix ourselves and to find answers for our own ish. That is a bad mental health professional. We can't get into what we do to fix ourselves that self-serving nature of of our of our career focus i guess or our goals means that we're not going to be very effective with other people because every time we read a book or every time we do some research we're applying it directly to us versus the a good therapist or good mental health professional will get into what they do to help others now i know 
Nothing is ever, you know, you can never fully only do it for others. There's always going to be a percentage where you're like, well, that kind of applies to me. That's totally natural and normal. What I mean is your motivation behind it, because people who go into it completely self-serving will only be self-serving and won't be able to actually help other people. Those of us who get into it to help others will actually be good at that. And I know that, you know, we all have human limitations, but just consider it for real. Be honest with yourself because trust me, I have a lot of uh, colleagues over the years, especially people I went to school with who got into it to like figure out their own stuff. And that is a very scary place. And I have to be honest, they would like ignore certain parts of uh, research or things that we're reading because it didn't apply to them. And so it, it limits you a little bit. And so be very honest and um, about your motivations behind becoming a therapist. And a lot of people in therapy will want to become therapists because it's been beneficial to them, right? It's been beneficial to me. So I think it could be beneficial to other people. I really like this. And that's totally cool. And I don't, you know, there's no shame in that either. That's very common because, of course, if we like something and we feel like this changed our life, why wouldn't we want to be part of it to help change someone else's? So I think that that's very, very normal and completely healthy and okay. Now, being in session as a therapist, with a therapist, it does change from my perspective as the patient, it does change the dynamic, even starting school, because I've been in therapy before I decided I wanted to be a therapist and like started school to become a therapist, right? So um it does. It did. I don't know. At the beginning, I guess it does. But when I find a therapist, it's a good fit. It doesn't really. Um, I mean, my therapist knows that like, she doesn't have to explain a ton of things to me. I will ask questions if I'm like, wait, I don't, I don't do that style of therapy. What is that again? I don't remember. Or, oh, um, you know, I might even mention like, oh, we're doing CBT, are we? And she'll be like, yep. You know, um, I can call things out, I guess, or notice things a little bit more quickly with what she's doing. But I don't know. I try as much as possible to leave like therapist me out of my therapy because that's only going to fuck it up. I'm only going to get in my own way and be like, oh, you should know better and like the judgment. And and, like, I'm not there to have the answers. I'm actually just there to dump my shit, you know, and get some insight and giving like leaving that kind of space and allowing that, that free space for me has been really healing and helpful. So just pay attention to that and let yourself off the hook. You don't have to be therapist you all the time. Now, a final question or final comment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On this said, what if you really like to tell things to your therapist that are not easy things to say, but are limits of confidentiality? Have you run into issues with any patients? Do you legally advise them not to tell you everything and to just generalize or censor so that you don't know any of their real hidden deep secret issues? I haven't run into this issue with any of my patients. I have. Okay, so the only limits to confidentiality, again, the only limits are if you are actively suicidal, meaning danger to yourself, or you're actively homicidal, meaning you're a danger to someone else, or if you're abusing someone. So a man, if, or if you're around abuse, like let's say your mom is abusing your grandfather who lives with you, 
the, those are mandated reporter situations. So if there's an elder, a dependent adult, or a child that's being abused, I will have to report it. That's it. The rest is not, I'm not going to break confidentiality. Now, the only issue that I've ever run into with my patients is around suicide and their concern about talking to me honestly about it. And I find the best way to kind of deal with this is to talk them through the process, meaning, okay, and this is early on usually in therapy, like if if they've ever, I, I do it almost with every patient, I have to be honest, unless we're in crisis when they come in. It's like the first or second appointment. I talk about the limits to confidentiality on the first appointment and they get a handout and all this stuff. But I also talk about like the steps that I would take if I thought that they were a danger to themselves and how I would do check-ins and how then I would ask for their permission to reach out to their roommate or their mom or whoever, someone close to them that I could get a hold of them that way, make sure they're okay to do the check-in or um, extra sessions, you know, like, and we would lead up. So it'd be like, uh, check-ins, extra sessions, talking to someone else in your life, um, you know, then considering hospitalization and stuff like that as we move farther, if you're still not safe. And there's all, all like, obviously there's things like creating safety plans early on, stuff like that. But I would talk them through it. And I feel like once they kind of know my process, they feel better able to share because it's not like they're going to tell me something and I'm just going to 5150 them. That's not how this works. That's not how it should work. I know some of you have seen shitty mental health professionals who have done that, but that's not how it should work. And so it is okay in any session, but arguably you could do it right away when you first start seeing therapists, ask them what their limits to confidentiality are and ask them what their procedure is that they follow if they think someone is suicidal. You can ask them to walk you through it. They should. It's okay. You need to know. You have a life. You don't want to be put in the hospital all of a sudden and like not be able to show up for your job or something like that or school. So ask them. And I would never, I don't legally advise anybody because I'm not a lawyer. Um, I don't tell people to generalize or censor what they say. I've told some of you that, um, you know, if you go in to see a therapist and you don't know the protocol and you tell them right away, like I'm suicidal and I, I want to kill myself like today, that could, you could wind up in the hospital. So you have to consider those things. That's why it's important to know ahead of time. Um, yeah. So that's really it. Okay. Moving on to question number two. This says, what's the most challenging thing for you about being a therapist? I got this question. I was like, most challenging. To be honest, I think if like, this is complete candor. I think the hardest thing about being a therapist in a private practice, so I'll answer twice because in a private practice, the hardest thing is that if I'm not at my practice, I have to find someone to cover for me and my patients never like that. And so it's really hard to actually get time off. And so that work-life balance is something that you're always having to like fight for. And it's difficult. And also if you're not in your office, you don't make any money. Like it's tricky when you work for yourself and, and when you have, you know, you're in session and then out of session, being able to leave it at work because you are on call essentially. Like, so I always had two phones, one for my office and one per personal. Um, and when I would go out to eat or anything, you know, I don't bring my work phone with me because I give, I tell my patients, I have 24 hours to call you back. If you can't wait for that 24 hours, you need to call 911. And it also says on my voicemail. Um, and so that 
it's really challenging that work-life balance. But then if I'm working in a clinic, so let's say in the hospitals, when I used to work in the eating disorder treatment centers and stuff like that, you get to fully leave work at work, which is beautiful um, because other people are on call then, right? And I guess in that case, the most challenging thing is uh, trying to remind your patients of, or not even remind, that's not the right word, but I think it's like, it's challenging to, when patients are having a really tough time to, to like remind them of hope for the future. Again, remind isn't the best word, but it's like to mention it again and to, to hold that hope for them. I guess that's the most challenging. I think it's like holding the hope because sometimes as patients, we can lose it. It's really hard and we can't see it getting better. And we don't even know, you know, it's just really challenging and you feel for them and it's a weird space when you like feel for someone and you're sharing in that emotional experience, but you're also like supposed to be the support. So you can't like fall apart with them. You have to like hold it. And sometimes that's really hard. Um, especially when they're telling you something that's really painful for them, because usually you're so invested, like it's painful for you to hear. And on the human level, it's hard to hear sometimes. And so I think that's challenging. Now there was a comment that said, as an add-on, what do you think of patients that ask many questions? I think that's wonderful. I love when my patients ask a bunch of questions. I am a naturally curious person, and for as long as I can remember, I've tried to understand how things work. You and me both. Even as a little kid, I noticed details and performed small experiments. No, my teachers did not appreciate my glue ink mixture. <laughs> I love it. I'm on the best. Uh, I'm on the best way to become a scientist, and already I work in bio in a biomedical research lab. That's wonderful. So being curious is basically my job, and I love it. I guess if I were to go to therapy, something that's been on my mind for a while now, I would be very interested in how and why this process works and what the theory behind certain techniques are. I wouldn't ask questions because I doubt, in this case, the qualifications of the therapist. I'm just curious because I have no experience in mental health topics. I think doing your research on your own is great. You can definitely ask questions in therapy. I would be, as a therapist, it wouldn't bother me at all, but I would push back against it only because I wouldn't want you to be intellectualizing the therapy process. I have a feeling you might have an urge to intellectualize difficult situations, meaning I like to think them through and I like to understand it fully in order to protect myself from having to feel any pain or admit that my emotions are uncomfortable. So I would be very cautious of that as your therapist, but I would be have no problem answering questions. I would just kind of push back a little bit there and be curious about if you're able to show up without questioning everything, if you're able just to be like, what's that like? Are you ever able to do that? I would have a lot of questions about that, but there's nothing wrong with asking questions. I've asked questions in my day too. Um, it's okay to under, it's to want to understand. And like I said, feel free to do your own research too on the back end to better understand how and why it works. And that also could help you pick out a therapist that you think is a good fit for you. Now, the final comment says, I love that. Also, what's the most rewarding thing about being a therapist? And what are some factors that would convince people to want to become a therapist? Now, the most rewarding thing is just the growth. It is such a privilege to get to be with people through what they might consider, or we both might agree and consider it to be the worst times of their lives or the most difficult challenges. And to watch them, you know, pull themselves out and thrive as God, it just never gets old. It's just so rewarding. Um, yeah. I, and everybody's so different too. That's what makes it so beautiful is you never know 
what aha moments are coming down the pipeline and what what could all of a sudden resonate with some, I don't know. It's just such a, oh, so wonderful. And then the factors that we convince people to want to become a therapist. I mean, you don't do it for the money because trust me, there's not that much money in it. Um, But I guess the thing, the reasons that I love it is again, the, the getting to see people grow and change is super fulfilling work. Um, I, I mean, I love being a caretaker and like a helper. And so really feeds into like my own need to be needed, uh, which is something I work on in my own therapy, but that's really great for me. Um, also I think the flexibility of it, you get to kind of work when you want, you set your hours and some people might disagree too, because as a therapist, you don't usually work like the regular times of the day. Like some, of uh, some people, you know, want to, most people want to come either before, early in their day, around their lunch or after work. And my evenings were jammed. I would work until like 9 p.m. at night because that's when people wanted to, you know, get in. And so your hours are kind of flexible, but not really. But you, if you want to take time off, like I said, you reschedule those people or you don't put any people in that day and you're fine, you know? And so that can be really great. Um, so the flexibility there, also just the vast ways that you can utilize your degree and your license. You can work in a hospital setting. You can work in a treatment center like eating disorders, anxiety can be outpatient. You can, you can be an HR. There's a lot of people who go into the human resources area. I personally don't enjoy it at all, but a lot of people do. And so I think that, you know, those are all factors that made me want to become a therapist. Also, I find I got bored with so many other jobs and people are just so interesting and they're always changing. So yeah, those are just some of the reasons to become a therapist. Moving on to question number three it says, hi, Katie, I find it difficult to go back to therapy after my old therapist left giving me a two week notice. The thought of going back to therapy gets me feeling angry and I'm worried that I might be a bit passive aggressive and push my new therapist away. What's the best way to handle this with my new therapist? First of all, two-week notice is not sufficient, and I am so sorry. When it comes to terminating therapy or referring someone out to a higher level of care or whatever it might be, the best way to go about that is to give at least a month. It's always at least 30 days, but sometimes 60, sometimes 90, just depends on what's happening. Um, and you want them to transition over to see someone else before you like let them go. You don't want them to be without any care. Um, so I'm sorry, that's really unethical. Now, the best way to deal with this with your new therapist is to talk about it, to bring it up, to say what happened and talk about your concerns. Even say, I'm worried it might be passive aggressive and try to push you away because of this. It's okay to just air it, to put it out there. I know that sounds kind of like hard, first of all, it's hard to just air what we're thinking. But the truth is that often once we say something out loud and once we've given it like space and we can talk about it, then the fear surrounding it and the constant thinking of it, it just fades away. It's beautiful. And I know it's hard up front, but it's easy on the back end. And then that can allow your therapist to, you know, mitigate this, to ask questions about it, to better understand what took place. And give you the space to talk, to tell them if something is coming up and if something, you know, is, is concerning you like, Oh, you said this thing, or you had to reschedule. And that was really triggering. Okay. Let's talk about it, you know, and my availability and boundaries and, and that I am still here, you know, that reassurance and the, the conversations about these concerns are really important. And so that's really the best way to handle it is to talk about it and give it space. Okay. 
Now let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie, my question involves sexuality. Is there a way to differentiate between being asexual and having experiences or trauma in your past that have negatively impacted your sexual outlook and behavior? I have a difficult time with physical intimacy and sexual attraction and have always felt that I was straight by default as I don't have an attraction to the same sex, but I never had relationships or instances of super strong sexual attraction to the opposite sex either. I grew up in a very sheltered and sex negative home where anything sexual was considered taboo until after you were married. I'm 25 and I recently been doing some research into asexuality to see if it feels right for me, but I'm having a hard time trying to decide if these feelings or lack of sexual feelings are the result of my upbringing or if I was simply born this way. Could I be using asexuality as a quote unquote out or a way of not working through past traumas as if deciding I fall under the label means that I won't have to be curious about my difficulties with intimacy anymore? Thank you so much for the time you take to answer our questions every week. Love from your home state of Washington. Ooh, my Pacific Northwesterner. Hello. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. This is a great question. And the truth is, the only way to know is to start working through the trauma. Unfortunately, just saying that we're asexual or we're just not interested in people, we, we're asexual or aromantic or whatever we might think. If we have trauma in our past, it's it's very likely that it's linked to that, but we won't know until we process it through. A lot of my patients, especially with complex PTSD, have a really, really, really hard time with any physical touch. Even non-intimate touch, just like anybody brushing up against them is like, because we're hypervigilant, right? We have to protect ourselves. Other people who've touched us have done harm. So we don't really feel safe. So why would we ever, ever want to be in a romantic relationship? Uh-uh. No, thank you. Touching all the time. Mm-mm. Right? Super uncomfortable. Now, could we be asexual? Of course we could. But the only way to really tease that out is to actually do the work and to process it through and to figure out, because it sounds like from this person who has this question, the fact that you were in a very sex negative home, I'm not surprised you have that, you know, view or thought process around sex and intimacy and physical touch. Um, but we won't know where it's really coming from until we process that trauma. And I know that's a shitty answer. I know you probably were hoping it was something different, but that's really the truth. And regardless of whether we're asexual or aromantic, we're still going to have to process our issues with intimacy. Just because we don't want romantic relationships or sexual uh, relationships doesn't mean we don't want intimacy. Intimacy isn't just physical, it's emotional. And often when we come from a trauma past, especially, you know, sex negative or sexual abuse, right? Um, It can be hard for us to let people in and to want to, you know, tell people about what's going on with us. And so regardless of whether we do want, end up wanting to have relationships or sexual of sexual nature or romantic nature, we're still going to have to figure that shit out, right? We're still going to have to work through our issues with intimacy. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's difficult, but trust me when I tell you you're worth it. You deserve to have healthy, happy relationships, whatever those will look like for you. 
You deserve to have them. And we need to give ourselves an opp- the opportunity to do that. Okay. Now there was a comment on this as I have the same question um, regarding aromanticism. If anybody's confused, aromantic means we don't want like, just think of how it sounds. No romantic relationships. Asexual is like, I don't have any, I'm I'm not interested in sex with anyone, sexual intimacy. I might want a a romantic relationship, but this doesn't include sex. Does that make sense? I hope that, and if anybody wants to give a more thorough definition and explanation, please leave it in the comments because I'm still learning along with everybody else. Okay. Now, says, how do I know if I'm aromantic or just don't want relationships because of trauma? If I don't want them, do I even have to work through it? I don't mean to laugh. Oh, we'll talk about this. After all, I have no desire to be in them. Or can the trauma affect other areas of your life outside of the area the trauma took place in? Okay, so much to unpack here. If you don't want relationships, that doesn't mean that you get an out and don't have to process your trauma. I know it sucks. I'm just as mad as you are. But Yes, trauma impacts every part of our physical and mental health in our entire life. Now, just hear me out. Now, if you want to read about the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, I write about it in my book, Traumatized, I break it down. Now, the ACEs study shows the correlation between adverse childhood experiences, meaning trauma and abuse, with our physical health, meaning diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, all of that stuff. And they see a direct correlation. So not only is our trauma affecting our relationships and our own mental health, it affects our physical health. Because if you didn't realize, we're all connected up in here, right? It's all one big unit. So yes, it's going to affect other areas. Not to mention having trauma in our past can make us hypervigilant and can make cause us to fawn, meaning we're intense people pleasers, which can lead to issues in our work or school or our friendships. Um, it can make it hard for us to do things in our regular life to send food back when it's sent out wrong or to call customer service and ask for a refund for something. I know these are like silly examples, but you can just see how pervasive trauma can be in our life and how many different parts of our life it can affect. It can also make it hard for us to like trust our own gut so we can lean on other people in our life to make bigger decisions for us. This could be at, you know, work, school, or our personal life. The ways that trauma affects us are endless. It does it's not just unfortunately like isolated to the the area of our life that it took place in, right? It's not like just because we were sexually abused, we're only going to have issues with sex. It's not that simple. It affects everything about us, the way that we view the world, the the, the way we view ourselves. Think of the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment that is associated with trauma. It affects our confidence and all that stuff. So whether or not we want relationships, whether we're aromantic or asexual or whatever, we still have to process it through. We still have to give ourselves an opportunity to heal from what happened. Just because we don't want relationships doesn't mean that we don't want a relationship with ourselves. That's no, that's not a healthy life to live. And so I would just encourage you to, as uncomfortable as it is, to push back and to work through it because only through it will we truly get the answer of whether it is the trauma or asexuality or aromanticism. Let's move on to question number five. And it says, hi, Katie, this is a follow-up question on an episode where you talked about using masturbation as a way to cope. I was wondering, does it have to be born out of sexual abuse? And what if it's a very young child? 
I teach a three-year-old who plays with his private parts quite intensely while laying on the floor anywhere, whenever he's bored, tired, angry, or even in the middle of a meltdown. I would like to think that it's due to autism rather than exposure to sexual acts. I was taught to keep him occupied so that he won't have time to play with his private parts. Huh. But it's hard when it's his preferred way of coping with strong emotions. Is teaching other ways to cope a priority or will he grow out of this? Is it that is it that inappropriate as everyone around me makes it seem since he is still so young? Okay, so I'm not a specialist in autism spectrum disorders, otherwise known as ASD. However, I will tell you that this is not, I, I cannot see a, a any logical reason why a three-year-old who is not sexualized, by the way, at three years old, we're not even developmentally, it, it's not where our, our brain or body is at. Okay, let's just think about that for a second. And let's be honest with each other. Three years old is too young to masturbate. We don't have those, like, we haven't gone through puberty. We have no hormonal development in that way. We're just babies. I've never heard, and if anybody is in the autism realm and has heard about this, please let us know in the comments. But I've never heard in my years being online and in my practice and working in hospitals and clinics, and I've never heard of masturbation or playing with our private parts as a a stemming type of thing. Meaning if you don't know what stemming is, it's something that autistic people will do as a way to like soothe. It can be like it's repetitive motions usually. Um, and it can, it can be detrimental. Some people will like self-harm kind of like scratching, but a lot of rocking. Um, some will like want to hit their head against something. We try to, that's why a lot of times we'll wear like squishy helmets and stuff when they're babies. Cause we don't want them to hurt themselves. There can be a lot of different stemming type behaviors. Those are just a few random examples. Now, I've never heard of anyone masturbating as a way to stem, as a way to calm. Um, and so I believe this is sexual abuse. And I mean, as a therapist, I'm like, I would have to report this that I am curious, like I'm suspicious because that's not natural or normal for a three-year-old. It's too young. And it's normal for children to like want to touch their private parts, especially little kids. They don't even think anything of it. It's not in a masturbation type of way. It's like... um like if you're changing a baby's diaper, sometimes they'll even reach down there, whatever, but it's not done in a sexual way. It's more of a curiosity about the human body, right? I'm just starting to be able to see things. And I'm just very curious about this. That's natural, normal curiosity. But to want to do it all the time when you're bored, tired, angry, and as a way to cope, ooh, I am I am very suspicious of him being exposed to sexual acts, whether that's porn, whether that's being sexualized, been sexually abused. Um, and all this is abuse, by the way, but I'm just talking about the different ways it can manifest, like see being around parents having sex all the time, watching por- like porn being played all the time, or something being done to him himself. Now, because he's touching himself, my guess is because, and he's also three, he's too little to understand like porn. I think something's been done to him. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. That sucks. Shit like that's always so, it's so heavy and it's so hard and it's sad, but please, I would, I don't know what your role is, but if you can report this, I would report this. I would talk to the people in his life, find out what's going on. That's not normal. And teaching other ways to cope will be helpful, but he needs more than that. He needs he needs removal from wherever this is happening um, because it is inappropriate 
he's a child. He doesn't even know. And it's not something they just grow out of. Some abuse is happening. I mean, that's just like, there's so many red flags that that's, that's my inkling. That's what, where I would go to, like, that's what I would go to. (sighs) Yeah. Let's move on to question number. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Six. This question says, hi, Katie. Why does it feel like I'm always walking on eggshells? Oof, I know that feeling. When I was growing up in my house, I always felt like I was walking on eggshells because my parents were always mentally abusive. But now that I've moved out and I'm living on my own with roommates, I still find myself feeling like I'm walking on eggshells. Why is this? Thank you so much for everything you do. Because we've been trained our whole life growing up. We thought if we did everything just right, that we our parents wouldn't emotionally abuse us. They wouldn't yell at us. We wouldn't get hurt. So it was protective. We walk on eggshells. We make sure we do everything perfectly. We try to please other people, try to read the room. Is somebody, maybe they're in a bad mood. Oh, what happened? They decide. Maybe they're mad. Ooh, right? We're just super hyper vigilant. We are aware of every little thing people do because that's how we survived. Now that trauma response, because that's what this is, walking on eggshells is a trauma response. This trauma response has followed us into adulthood because we don't know another way of interacting with people. We don't know what else to do. And that's why it's there. We haven't processed through the trauma that happened. We haven't even recognized our unhealthy behavior as a result. This like fawning, people pleasing slash walking on eggshells. So of course it's going to be there. We didn't do anything to get rid of it. And that's the only way we know how to interact. And so it is something that you can work through as you process your trauma, as you work to heal. It's hard. I'll be honest. Um, it, it's something that we just have to be aware of and we have to fight back against. And the constant thought that someone's mad at you, it's never really about you. I don't know when I had this epiphany. I was probably like maybe 30. I know that sounds really late and I'm sorry, but like it took it took me a while to realize that like I would just assume people were upset with me or mad at me. It was this like urge to people please, but I would just assume that they were and I had no evidence to support it. It was so stupid and I would do it all the time to my own detriment because then I would like try to please my way out of it when they weren't even upset with me. And I had this aha moment. I think it was when my friend Mamrie had told me that like, oh, if she was just quiet, it's had nothing to do with me. And she didn't say it directly to me. She said it to like four of us or more. She was like, I'm probably just silently having a panic attack. And I was like, oh my God, it's not about me. Jesus Christ, Katie, get out of your head, you know? Um, And so it's not about you. And I'm just there to hopefully help you on your path. Um, But as you process through why this is coming up for you, for yours, it's it's very clear. The emotional abuse you sustained at the hands of your parents has led to this. And we can process through that and come to a place where we can do some fact checking with some close friends, even with ourselves and our therapist as well about like, Am I doing this as a way to people please and walk on eggshells? Or is this just me being me, you know, trying to tease out behaviors that may or may not be linked to it is really helpful in healing. Um, And you'll get through it. 
you can live a much happier, healthier life. Confrontation is going to be hard for you for a while, but you'll get to a place where you can have it and know that the world isn't over because you had it. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that said this exclamation points, tons of them to add on. I grew up in the same sort of household yet. Now I live alone and I find myself, as you say, walking on eggshells in pretty much all other aspects of my life with my bosses who are lovely, might I add, and a few good friends. I have even total strangers I encounter doing my day-to-day errands and it is exhausting. It totally is. I find myself doing this on auto, even in the simplest of encounters. And ultimately, this leads to me try, trying to say or do everything just right as to not upset or hurt anyone's feelings, but it only ever ends up upsetting myself because I'm so heavily tiptoeing around people and feel like some people see this and take advantage. Yeah. I've ended up on in so many scenarios where ultimately I was the scapegoat because of walking on my walking on eggshells enabled people to control a scenario or situation before I even realized. Why does this behavior attract these sorts of people? I hope this makes sense. And I would love for you to delve into this more and explain what exactly is going on here. P.S. Thanks for all that you do. Of course. Okay. Oh, there's so much. So it's the only way we know to survive. And in order to stop doing it, we have to heal the wound that has caused this, right? This is like our body's defense mechanism because we feel like we if we're getting abused, no matter what, and we don't really know what else to control, we can only control ourselves. So we try to act in just the right way and do everything just the right way, because then maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed, we won't get abused or harmed again. Now, unfortunately, we can still be abused and harmed. And so we try to do it more and more into a more intense amount. And this can lead to eating disorder, self-injury, depression, anxiety, you name it, all sorts of stuff. Um, it's a PTSD response, otherwise known as hypervigilance, right? We're a super, super aware of our environment so that we can do everything just right. That's why it's happening. Now, why does this behavior attract these sorts of people? Because people who want to take advantage, especially narcissists and people, um, I guess just people with malicious intent. So anybody who wants to get away with something or is a bad actor in our space, they're going to notice that we are super kind and super caring. And they're going to push a little bit at first to see if we will deal with their ridiculousness, right? Like if we'll put up with them making us do the like all the paperwork on this thing at work, or they'll make us take the notes in class, right? They'll ask for stuff like that first to see if we'll do it. And usually we do because we want to please everybody. Um, and then they'll end up doing more malicious things that will put us at I guess it will like cause us to be the problem or we'll get in trouble for something, right? We're always the ones that are the scapegoat for whatever's going on because we're the ones that want to please. And it's like, it happens for two reasons. They, we attract these kinds of people because they're always out on the lookout for people like us for friendly over, overcompensate, like overly nice. So they're always sniffing us out. The second is that when we are walking on eggshells and we're intensely people pleasing like this, we don't trust our own gut. We look outwards to other people to see how we should feel or what we should do or not do. And so we're looking out into our environment all the time to try to make sense of what's going on inside because we don't have a very good sense of self or uh, a ton of confidence or self-reliance. We'll look to other people. And when we look to those other people, 
a lot of times because they've been sniffing us out, it'll be the wrong person there that we're going to ask for insight into this or for advice on how to react or what to do um, because we don't trust ourselves. And so that's really why we end up attracting those sorts of people. And I'm so sorry. It sucks. And they're assholes. So that's what's going on. It's a trauma response. Moving on to question number seven says, when dealing with past trauma, you've mentioned that talk therapy isn't always enough. Yes. Especially if someone finds it hard to talk about what other therapies like EMDR or somatic therapy, when you remove the trauma from your, from the body, does that heal Oh, with other therapies like EMDR? Okay. Um, or do you use these therapies to remove the charge from the emo- from the trauma so that you can talk and work through it? Okay, good questions. Now, talk therapy isn't always enough because just talking it through and putting it into a story or a narrative form um, doesn't help with the emotional charge. We can still have body memories. We can still have flashbacks. Sure, for like 40% of people, it works and it's effective. So if you're that 40%, that's awesome. But for the other 60% of us, we're going to need something additional, meaning talk therapy gets us there. It's like moving, let's say zero is like still really in our trauma before we started therapy. We're trying to get to to 100%, right? So let's say talk therapy gets us like 50% there. Well, the other 50% is what will remove the body memories or the flashbacks or all these like residual symptoms, whatever they are for you. And that means that like when we're doing EMDR, that eye movement, desensitization, wow, that was hard for me for some reason, reprocessing gives our brain another chance to process through the trauma. And let's say that that does it, that kicks it. Okay, I don't really have any of these residual symptoms anymore. Or somatic experience, we move it through our body and it gets rid of those body memories, those pesky sensations that are so incredibly uncomfortable. So that's how it works to heal. Meaning that just talking it through might get us some way some like somewhere on our journey, it gets us part of the way there, but the other treatments will get us the rest of the way. And it just really depends on how, how your trauma is stored and what therapies you find to be the most effective for you. Sometimes it's just, we need a different type of therapy. It could be schema where we're breaking, um, breaking ourselves into different parts of ourselves, like different schemas that represent, uh, like, I don't know, maybe it's the the fighter in us, or maybe it's the people pleaser, or maybe, you know, whatever it kind of is, we're kind of breaking it up and we're trying to make sense of it and like break through those defense mechanisms. So it just really depends. Um, But that's, that's how it heals. That's how we essentially move past the trauma and move through it is either giving our brain another chance to reprocess it. We're using different tools to process the trauma not just talking it through. Does that make sense? I hope so. Because there are other techniques and tools and therapy that can be beneficial other than just talking it out. Um, now, the, another comment says, also as an add-on, when doing trauma work in talk therapy, it's going to be uncomfortable as expected, but how can you tell the difference between discomfort and pushing yourself too fast, especially as someone who is highly sensitive to change? Is that when someone should try other therapies like EMDR? You could try another therapy, but really the way to know if you're pushing yourself too fast is if you feel worse after therapy, meaning you're not moving toward anything better. So maybe I'm not saying that clearly. 
After therapy, we can feel like shit. That's fine. We can have a therapy hangover. That doesn't mean we're going too much too fast. But if we find ourselves unable, like we dissociate through therapy almost entirely through the whole session, we can't even like be grounded after the session. We feel worse. We have more flashbacks and it's not getting any better. We're not actually making any progress towards like toward feeling like a better us. That's when we're pushing ourselves too fast. So we're not actually making any good, meaningful change. Okay. So that's, there is discomfort in therapy, but if you find all of your symptoms getting worse, like week after week, that's too much too fast. And if we're dissociating in therapy, not able to stay present, that's too much too fast also. Now, you could try another therapy if talk therapy just happens to be too difficult. That's why there are other therapies to try. There's nothing wrong with that either. Now, another comment says, can you also touch on brain spotting and its role in working with trauma? Unfortunately, I don't know a ton about brain spotting. Um, I I know that a lot of people do it instead of EMDR or because they both cause eye movements to happen and give our brain another opportunity to process through the trauma. Now, overall, to tell you a little bit about brain spotting is when we compare it to EMDR, first of all, they say that it tends to be like a faster process than EMDR. I'm just telling you what they report. But brain spotting was discovered by uh, a guy by the name of David Grand. And he had done a lot of work with EMDR and, and other treatment modalities, obviously. But because it's a little bit more flexible, brain spotting, um, let me tell you how it works. I'm just going to read to you from this one brain spotting uh, website that explains what it does. It says a therapist and client work together to find the brain spot or eye position. Okay. So eyes moving them directions. That's why it's similar to EMDR that corresponds with the specific emotional response or incident. Once that target, once on that target, the therapist and client simply allow the client's brain to make the connections needed to continue processing event processing this event. This works a little differently for each client. However, brain spotting also allows a therapist to utilize resources in session if it ever feels too intense. Now, it sounds a lot like EMDR to me, but your eyes aren't moving. It's like you're trying to find a spot. Um, I honestly, when it comes to things like this, first of all, I don't do it in my practice and I'm not a trained EMDR therapist or brain spotting therapist. But if something works and it's available for you and you can afford to do it, I think it's always worth a try. If it helps one person, it's totally worth it. And so, yeah, that that's all I really know. I don't know a ton about brain spot. I'm happy to do more research and to create like a full video on it. Um, yeah, that that's all I know. Okay. Now another question says, Hey Katie, not sure if it fits in with this question, but I struggle with traumatic images. It's very common. What can help alleviate these processing through the trauma? Unfortunately, a little background. I'm currently working with a therapist and the images I struggle with are medical trauma related. My first daughter I lost at 22 and a half weeks pregnant and she was born alive, but the hospital I was at didn't have tubes small enough. Um, and I can see, still see her fighting to breathe. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. I also see the image of my 17-year-old brother hooked up to life support after he was crushed in, crushed in a machine at work, as well as him fighting to breathe after the, after the decision to remove life support. And the last one is seeing CPR being done on my father, who unfortunately passed away. Thanks for all that you do. I am so sorry for your losses. That's so heavy. Grief is so hard. It's the traumatic images are similar to flashbacks or body memories. We all just experience trauma differently in the way that we're going to recall it. And for you, I honestly, I feel that EMDR could be the 
potentially most beneficial for you. I've worked with a lot of patients who had trauma images and EMDR tended to be the most effective. Now, that doesn't mean that others won't work for you. I'm just giving you my my thoughts based on the experiences that I've had with my patients. Um, but I think that EMDR and trauma therapy in general will help alleviate these. It is a trauma response. It is your flashback. This just happens to be images, not, you know, movies and not like you're back in it. It's like you're seeing it happen again. Um, and those, it's very common. And I think that doing that trauma work, whether it's EMDR or another type of therapy that works for you will help those finally go away. Let's move on to our last question, question number eight. It says, hi, Katie, is there an opposite of dissociation? Can you be too self-aware? Dissociation dissociation comes up quite frequently in AKA questions. And after listening to your videos and reading about it, I'm not sure that I've ever experienced it. If anything, I feel like sometimes I am too much in the moment, especially in stressful situations. I am very aware of my body. For example, my heartbeat, breathing, sweating, hands, and so on. It's almost like being trapped. I'm also very conscious of my body language and know how I, how to appear calm even when I don't feel like it. To be honest, sometimes I would like it if my brain would just pull the ripcord, as you always say. To be very self-aware can be tiring. Is there something I can do? Meditation makes me focus on my body, which therefore doesn't work for me and also makes me anxious. That's super common, by the way, too. A lot of people don't like meditation uh, for that very reason. What you're talking about is hypervigilance. And a lot of the comments below this said the same thing. Dissociations when we are in... So, okay, let's talk briefly about the window of tolerance, otherwise known as our resilient zone. Now we have this window of tolerance. And if we've been traumatized, the window of tolerance is usually much thinner. Now, up here on the top part, out of our window of tolerance is fight flight. Here on the bottom is freeze and fawn. Now, when we go down into freeze and fawn, that's where dissociation happens. Our brain pulls the ripcord because we have to freeze, right? We cannot do anything to run away or to fight back against the person who's doing us harm. We have to freeze. How do we survive when things are still happening, even though we're people pleasing and freezing? Uh, we, ah, our brain pulls the ripcord. That's where dissociation happens. You live up in fight flight zone, which... For some of us, we think, oh, that could be good because then you you have this movement, you know, you're you're actually like fighting back. No, in fight flight, when it comes to trauma response, right? We're not just talking stress response. We're talking trauma response. That can look like hypervigilance, which is a symptom of PTSD. And that is me being acutely aware of my body, how I feel in my body and my environment and everything around me. And if I can't see a certain part around me, I can't like... I, that I've heard from many of you, was it two weeks ago, maybe a week before that, but someone was sharing how they have to have their back against the wall, like to feel it if they're in a room and they, that's how they can like stop the flashbacks or stop the, <clears throat> the anxiety of, uh, hypervigilance. Cause hypervigilance is fucking exhausting. You're like on edge primed for that fight flight, right? We're up in that stress response, waiting for something to happen, waiting to be able to take action. And just having that intense consciousness of everything around us and our body and all of that, frankly, it's just too much. And so the best way to actually manage this is to find, to, to trial and error out some f- ways to calm your system down. 
Now, the full body shake can be extremely effective. Meditation, no. Breathing techniques, no. That's going to, no, no, it's too much. Like you said, it brings more attention. You're like, please, I'd like less attention. So full body shakes, uh, I think a lot of movement in your body will help you feel better. But does putting your back against a wall feel better or worse? Um, Can we... Um, let's think of other things like, can we color? Does journaling help? Does venting it out to someone, talking to someone, does that help? Does getting in your car and driving around, does that help? Like consider how you feel. Try some coping skills. I have my video, 25 coping skills. You can just look on YouTube, 25 coping skills, Katie Morton, it should pop up. Um, try some of these different coping skills and see which ones work for you. Everybody's going to be different. Um, there's no shame. As long as it's not harmful to you or anybody else, there's nothing wrong with uh, any type of coping skill, like taking a colder shower or a warm shower, or maybe we're going to put on super cozy PJs and watch a favorite movie, or maybe we're going to doodle or, you know, there's a ton of different things we can do to kind of um, circumvent this hypervigilance, hyper awareness. And I find personally the full body shake to be really effective when we feel that energy kind of, you know, building or exercise of some sort. Um, again, it's kind of that shake without doing just a shake. Um, any of those things can help, but we're going to have to do some trial and error to figure it out. And then write the ones that work down as many of them as they are, as there are, and keep them in a place where you can find all the time, probably like in the notes on your phone or something like that. So that you can access it whenever you need it. Okay. Now there was a comment on this and it says, as an add-on, when are you too self-aware. I feel like I analyze my body movements, my behaviors, my thoughts, and my emotions to the point of feeling annoyed with myself and tired of playing the game of always trying to convey something perfectly with body language. Huh. I'm also, for the most part, super aware of why I behave and think about the things that I do. But sometimes I just want to be able to feel it without rationalizing it. Thanks so much. I think you're doing too, you are too self-aware. I think it might be a defense mechanism. It could be part of your PTSD. It might be that hypervigilance again, but it sounds like it could be like rationalizing because rationalization is a co- is a defense mechanism as well as you could potentially be people pleasing where you're trying to do everything perfectly. So nothing's misconstrued by anybody so that everybody's happy. And if I do things just a certain way, then everything will turn out okay. I don't know what your thought process is, but I'm very curious about all of those things. And it's still the same. We still have to find ways to calm our system down. That awareness, that intense self-awareness of you know, analyzing your body movements and your behaviors and your thoughts and your feelings and all this stuff so that you can't ever just be, we're going to have to try some of those coping skills to find a way to calm us down. And I would encourage you to, if you're not already in therapy, to seek out therapy and to figure out when this started and why it's here. A lot of times when we have behaviors or things that we're doing and we don't like them, it's not so much about hating on ourselves and shit talking because we know that doesn't help us at all, right? That doesn't make anything better. That just makes us feel worse. So instead of doing that, talking to someone and telling them, hey, these are the things I do and I don't like doing them. How do I stop? then we have to figure out where they started and why they exist in the first place. Again, going to the root of the root of that issue. Otherwise, we're just like treating the tree up top or this, let's say it's a weed, right? Something we don't want. And it's like this dandelion and we're just like cutting it, but it's going to keep growing back because there's still a reason that it exists. And until we figure that reason out and rip it out of the dirt, it's going to keep growing back. And so just be curious, try to find other ways to cope so that you don't have to go into this like intense rationalization or people pleasing behavior. Um, It'll take time, but it can and will get better. Okay. So hang in there. 
Thank you so much for listening and watching. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Um, Please share it with a friend. Please leave a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts where they let you leave reviews. Leave those reviews and share it with a friend. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.